this is by far the closest signals we've had ever to an actual arrest warrant being issued in the context of the situation in Palestine. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Speaking from Cairo after visiting the Rafah border crossing on October 30th, the International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor, Karim Khan, promised accountability. Quote, Children and men and women and the elderly can't be ripped from their homes and taken as hostages, whatever the reasons, he said. Quote, and when these types of acts take place, they cannot go uninvestigated and they cannot go unpunished. He later added that in targeting houses, hospitals, and places of worship, Israel has the burden of proof to demonstrate that these were legitimate targets of war. These remarks from Egypt have set into motion a process that may lead to ICC indictments of Israelis and Palestinians for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Joining me to explain what this investigation may look like and how it may unfold is Mark Kirsten. He is a senior consultant of the Wayamo Foundation and an assistant professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. This is obviously a very timely conversation that will help you understand some of the legal and political implications of this conflict for the International Criminal Court. So I've covered the ICC as a journalist for nearly as long as it has been in existence, and in a recent bonus episode, I offer some of my own perspective on the significance of this investigation. In general, these bonus episodes that I've been publishing for paying subscribers have much more of my own views and analysis than the typical Global Dispatches show like this one, in which I'm mostly just asking questions of guests. But as a foreign policy journalist for about two decades now, I've certainly developed some expertise and views, and I share these regularly with those of you who have taken the extra step to support the show. If you are listening on Spotify, you can access these episodes by subscribing via patreon.com slash global dispatches. You'll be given a special premium Spotify feed when you sign up via Patreon. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, you can upgrade directly in the app 
And anyone can get these episodes at globaldispatches.org and signing up for a paid subscription. Your support is absolutely crucial to the success of this show. Now here is my conversation with Mark Kirsten, success of this show. Now here is my conversation with Mark Kirsten. I'm interested in getting your take on the significance of Karim Khan's visit to Rafa and then to Cairo. Like, what did you glean from this recent trip? So I think it was a really important moment. It was by far the most powerful and significant statement with respect to the situation in Israel and Palestine that any ICC prosecutor to date has really made. We've seen different types of statements. Obviously, Mr. Khan, the current prosecutor's predecessor, was the one who moved towards opening an investigation. But we really haven't seen anything quite as dramatic or significant as a prosecutor visiting right next door to a situation of ongoing hostilities in Gaza and basically announce the work that he was continuing to do in relation to investigating alleged crimes in Israel and Palestine, in particular in the Gaza Strip, but also, of course, the West Bank, and also articulating very specifically, and I think being at the Rafah border crossing was a symbolic way to articulate this point as well, that he believes that, you know, impeding aid, humanitarian aid to the people in the Gaza Strip could constitute a crime under the jurisdiction of the ICC. What was remarkable in that sense was that backdrop of the trucks and the border itself. If there was any downside to his commentary, it was simply that it took him so long to do it. Many people, including myself, had called for some kind of significant statement on behalf of the ICC prosecutor He took five days to say anything at all after the events of the 7th of October, then came out with a couple of kind of media interviews and, you know, a very dry statement from his office saying that he continued to have jurisdiction over the situation. But really, his appearance at the Rafa border crossing, as well as his press conference in Cairo later that day, I think we're really drawing the line in the sand. And we'll see because he's now drawn this line in the sand. He has now articulated what he thinks to at least to a certain extent is happening with respect to his jurisdiction. And the big question is, okay, does this indicate as it had in Ukraine that he's willing to take action in terms of issuing arrest warrants or whatever it may be? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Ukraine because, you know, one thing about Khan that I've noticed as opposed to his predecessors, he, I don't know, seems to act quicker and perhaps more boldly and even in a way more audaciously than his previous two predecessors in the sense that he's willing to take certain risks and kind of take actions that are, you know, potentially risky for the court. So for example, like visiting Bucha, the site of a mass atrocity in Ukraine, not long after that mass atrocity, declaring it a crime scene. And then less than a year later, 
indicting Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's a huge deal. This is like the most powerful person ever indicted by the International Criminal Court. And you know, he did it. So it seems that he's not chastened in a way that other predecessors might have been. Yeah, it's a really interesting observation. He, I think, has, in Ukraine in particular, really taken up the mantle of an opportunity that I think very few people could have seen happen for the International Criminal Court. And of course, it's in some way grotesque to call any scene of mass atrocities an opportunity. But if we think back on his predecessor, Fatou Bensouda, she did not receive a great deal of support from Western states, in part because some of the work that she wanted to do in relation to, for example, the investigation into Afghanistan, which included alleged crimes committed by U.S. armed forces, or indeed into Palestine, was something that many states deeply, deeply opposed, particularly certain Western states. And so she didn't have a ton of support. And in Ukraine, those very same Western states, who, by the way, did not support Karim Khan's candidacy for ICC prosecutor until the very end. Even though he's British. Even though he's British, yeah. The sense I get is they were somewhat concerned with the compliments you're giving him, his audaciousness and his sharp independence or the appearance of his independence. That's the story that I understand. So they wanted somebody who might not continue the work of someone like Fatou Bensouda. And of course, what we saw in Ukraine and the reason why it was so important for Khan and the prosecutor's office is all of these states who had previously so sharply opposed the ICC and who pulled back their support, rhetorical support or otherwise, were now gung-ho about the ICC's role in Ukraine. And of course, so was Ukraine. So I mean, it's a remarkable turn of events if you get someone like Lindsey Graham, you know, bemoaning and basically castigating the ICC to the sidelines of geopolitics and history over the situation in Afghanistan and Palestine, and then actually being extremely vocal about how the United States has to supply evidence and information to the ICC prosecutor's office to support the investigation in Ukraine. I mean, the about face there is, is quite remarkable. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. that in some ways, he's audacious. And in some ways, he's taken the opportunity that presents itself with this unprecedented support in Ukraine for his investigation. I'm not convinced that the same thing will translate into Palestine for obvious political reasons. Yeah, it seems that the pendulum might swing back towards more hostility if and when Khan moves forward with a, a potential investigation in Palestine and in Israel. Yeah. Can you just take listeners back and kind of briefly explain the somewhat kind of convoluted legal and political history of attempts by the ICC to gain jurisdiction? over crimes committed, principally in the occupied Palestinian territories, because this has been a long and, and fraught story, and I think is an important context for understanding whatever investigation may unfold in the future. So can you just briefly explain what happened? In the 2010s, the early 2010s, I forget exactly what year, but authorities or officials from Palestine decided that they wanted the International Criminal Court to investigate any crimes committed on the territory 
of Palestine and submitted a request to the Office of the Prosecutor. At that time, they were rejected, in part because then-prosecutor Luis Moreno Ocampo and his office basically said, look, I can't tell whether you are a state. I don't have enough information before me to say that you are a state. And under the rules that the International Criminal Court operates, only a state can refer itself and therefore grant jurisdiction to the ICC over war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide that have occurred on that territory and by citizens of that state. So the message that was basically given there to Palestinians was more or less, and I've heard it referred to as this, is kind of go do your homework, not on international criminal law, but go do your homework kind of on presenting a better case that you are a state. And what Palestine and the Palestinian Authority in particular then did is seek membership in the United Nations General Assembly. It's an observer state, as I understand it now, which gave it a little bit more credentials. Once it received that level of membership in the UN General Assembly, it also joined a number of international organizations as a state, including, for example, UNESCO. During this time, the United States, Canada, and others basically threatened institutions like UNESCO with withdrawing of funds. I think the United States actually did withdraw funds if it accepted Palestine as a state. The vast majority, I understand it, of states around the world recognize Palestine as a state already. If you look at the map of states that don't, it is really primarily European states with some exceptions and the United States and Canada and some of their kind of Pacific allies, etc. So in any case, long story short, They returned to the ICC, I believe in 2014, with much better evidence that they were already a state. Now, the prosecutor took that and accepted Palestine as a member state of the International Criminal Court, which would then allow Palestine to refer itself, in a sense, to the ICC and to allow the ICC prosecutor to open an investigation. The hangup was, okay, Palestine is a state, but where does it stop and end? What is Palestine as a state? If we have jurisdiction as a court, we have to know that basically on this side of the road, we have territorial jurisdiction, but on that side of the road, we don't. And so even if the ICC accepted Palestine as a member state, it wasn't entirely clear precisely what that meant in terms of borders. So what the prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, did is she requested the opening of an investigation from the judges at the ICC, but she also asked for clarification as to what the borders were. And the judges came back with this assessment of the borders, which include East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the West Bank. There was some controversy here, and I don't think wrongly so. A criminal court is not best placed to decide, at the best of times, the borders of a state. But the ICC was kind of stuck because it had to delineate some borders that could be acceptable. The bigger controversies were around exactly where the borders of the West Bank were, because I don't think there is a state in the world that wouldn't accept that Gaza is Palestinian territory. And if 
Palestine is accepted as a state by the entire international community that Gaza would be part of it. So there's really no concerns over Gaza. It's more over the West Bank and exactly where it stops and ends, where Palestinian territory stops and Israeli territory begins. So anyways, the judges basically gave the green light. And in 2021, the ICC prosecutor opened an investigation based on the fact that she believed that international crimes, war crimes, had already been committed dating back to, I believe it was 2015. And then very quickly, that was one of the last things that happened during her tenure. And Mr. Kareem Khan kind of inherited that situation, an open investigation into the situation in Palestine, which I think it's important to reiterate, includes the territory of Palestine. So any crimes that are perpetrated on the territory of Palestine fall under the jurisdiction of the ICC. But so too do any international crimes committed by Palestinians anywhere. So the hostage taking or the attacks on Israel would also be under the ICC's jurisdiction. So Karim Khan, he is going to open up a more fulsome investigation, almost certainly. That investigation will include the crimes of Hamas that occurred on Israeli territory because they were committed by Palestinians, because that is included now in the jurisdiction of the court. This is something that Palestine itself accepted when they applied and referred the situation to the ICC. It will also include potential Israeli crimes in, for example, bombing Gaza right now. So can you walk us through what that investigation by the ICC might look like? What's the process? What's the procedure? What are some of the key inflection points that you're looking towards in the coming months or weeks ahead? Yeah, such a great and important question. And obviously, no ICC investigator has access to the crime scenes. And I think that's important to recognize. Mr. Khan has asked to visit Israel and Gaza and Palestine before, and he has been denied the opportunity. Part of the answer to your question, I think, goes back to your initial question about, you know, what about this visit to the Rafah border crossing? And I don't think people should, and listeners or people interested in the International Criminal Court and its investigation into the situation in Palestine and atrocities committed in Israel and Gaza right now, should gloss over the fact that he was in Egypt. And why? Because if Kareem Khan's office cannot gain access to witnesses in Gaza, which he cannot, or witnesses in Israel, which he cannot, then his best bet is actually to speak to witnesses who are coming through an international border. And the only international border that obviously doesn't lead into Israel is at the Rafah border crossing. I don't know for sure whether he has an investigation team on the ground in Egypt, but that would be a no-brainer place to start in terms of assessing the testimony of people and gathering it as soon as possible. It's also, as a side note, really notable that this happened in Egypt because Egypt would have had to have known that the ICC prosecutor is coming to the country. They would have had to negotiate things like security and where he stayed and so on and so forth. And actually, Egypt has been alleged by 
the ICC in the past of harboring individuals from Libya who had ICC arrest warrants against them. So I'm very curious, and I think we need to spend a little bit more time in the future on, on Egypt's role and whether Egypt will now be a kind of location for investigations into Palestine. The prosecutor can also request information from Palestinian factions, including Hamas and Israeli actors, including the IDF, whether or not they send that information in or not remains to be seen. It's quite possible, I think, that in these instances, we will get the kind of verbal rhetoric or the public facing denial of any cooperation or acceptance of the International Criminal Court by Tel Aviv, while the IDF may actually be sending through intermediaries, through some of its allies, some information or some evidence which points to the fact that in certain instances, for example, let's say the Al-Akhli Arab Hospital explosion and blast, that it wasn't in fact them because it may be in their interests to do so without doing it directly and therefore cooperating directly with the ICC. And then there are other ways to investigate these crimes. I think a big focus will be on open source investigations, which haven't really been tested at the International Criminal Court, but the International Criminal Court is increasingly interested in kind of open source types of investigations and evidence being submitted to the court, especially in the kinds of contexts that we're talking about now, where there literally is no access to the crime scenes on the ground. So I think it'll be a, a whole constellation of factors. And within each of those, within gaining wet witness testimony from people crossing the border into Egypt, the negotiations to get some of the actual belligerents or people on the ground to submit evidence and information to open source investigations, we can drill all the way down and think about what those things might actually look like. And they get quite complex quite quickly. But the idea is that, you know, if you have these different piles of evidence or information that you're gathering, that eventually you'll be able to all push them into, into the middle, understand the, say, command structure of an organization like Hamas, and be able to show that at each level, all of this information points to certain people being particularly or especially responsible for certain attacks and then issue arrest warrants for them, which is another interesting feature of this process or thinking through this process, because many of the people that could be eventually targeted by the ICC with respect to Hamas's atrocities are actually not in Gaza or even Palestine, but in other Gulf states. So I wanted to ask you how likely you think it might be that senior Israeli officials and senior Hamas officials end up being indicted by the international court. You know, oddly enough, I mean, from my perspective, it seems far more likely that the first indictments we see, if we do see indictments, will actually be against Hamas officials for the fact that, again, you know, Palestinians fall under the jurisdiction of the court. Also, the ICC operates under this principle of complementarity in which they see themselves as a court of last resort. They let local jurisdictions have the first crack at it and only kind of assume jurisdiction if local courts are unable or unwilling. There really is no functioning judiciary in Gaza. There is a functioning judiciary in Israel. And also, just like the crime of October 7th is much more just blatant and apparent and less deniable than, say, the crime of bombing an apartment building when you think there might be 
like hostile enemy combatants in there. It's more of like a legal gray area in certain respect than, say, storming a dance party and, and murdering a lot of people. So at least for those reasons, it seems almost paradoxically that Hamas officials will be more likely, at least initially, to be the target of ICC indictments. I'm wondering if that's your sense as well. So I think you kind of put your finger on something really important from a legal perspective, which is that the attacks by Hamas, and not just October 7th, but before, that these rockets that are fired from Gaza are by their design indiscriminate, right? They just do not in any way, shape, or form discriminate between civilian or military combatants at all. And so we know that to be true, not only of Hamas's attacks on October 7th, but we also know that of all of Hamas's rockets. And so you don't have to do this calculus or do this very complex analysis under international humanitarian law, the law that regulates armed conflict about you know, whether they discriminated or whether they distinguished between civilians and combatants, and then, you know, whether they targeted civilians or not. And then even if civilians died, was it proportional and thinking through things like military necessity and all of these things, which in the context of, as you put it, for example, the IDF's bombing of an apartment complex is the kind of analysis that has to be done because international humanitarian law does not in and of itself protect all civilian life, it creates rules to minimize the loss of civilian life in the context of armed conflict. But with Hamas, I really don't think there's any need to do that analysis whatsoever. So in some ways, the, and perhaps this is what you're saying, that the war crimes committed by Hamas are much more clearly and easily described from one act to the next as war crimes. And with that, I would agree with you. And indeed, that was the consensus that I have seen, again, not since October 7th, but for many years now, that the case against Hamas is significantly easier for these, precisely because these bombings are indiscriminate. And that matters to the ICC, because the ICC prosecutor presents himself and presents his office as pragmatic. So they want cases that have a high chance of success, and so they will pursue those. There are some exceptions, perhaps like the arrest warrant against a sitting head of state like Vladimir Putin, but generally speaking, they also want people in a dock and people that they can convict, just like any prosecutor would. So on that point, I would agree with you. The more recent events, and in particular, the siege of Gaza and the turning off of access to water or energy or the internet and the denial of humanitarian aid seems to be something that the prosecutor, given his comments at Rafa and afterwards in Cairo, are an inflection point for him. And I wouldn't ignore that. I wouldn't ignore him hinting at those things and therefore say, oh, he might just start with Hamas and not do anything about the denial or the impeding of humanitarian aid. And the reason why I say that, Mark, is about a week before the ICC issued arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Belova for forcibly transferring children from Ukraine to Russian-held territory or Russia itself, the ICC and Ukraine, I think at the same time, released this video of a visit by the prosecutor to Kiev where he was meeting with 
Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. And Zelensky basically tells him in that video how the most important thing to address is the children. The most important thing is the children. And you can watch that video. And it came before the arrest warrants were issued, just a couple of days before the arrest warrants were issued. And I think looking back, that may have been a kind of hint at what was coming. And I think the prosecutor did not talk about the specific impeding of aid as a potential international crime by accident. I think it is a warning signal that that's perhaps where he is focused when it comes to international crimes committed by members of the Israeli government. So yeah, I would just keep my eyes out on that given past precedents with the caveat that international criminal law and the work of the ICC is just so incredibly difficult to predict. Do you expect senior Israeli leaders, including potentially Netanyahu himself or the defense minister Gallant, to be indicted by the International Criminal Court in the coming months? I never (laughs) kind of try to predict these things. There have been too many times in my time working and studying international criminal law where something that I utterly and completely did not expect happens. So my answer is I don't know. At the same time, I would just reiterate the point and that you made as well about the audacity or the way in which Mr. Kareem Khan acts. If you combine that, his decision-making on a situation like Ukraine, the world's attention on the situation on Israel and Gaza right now, and indeed to a much lesser extent, but also the West Bank, and the fact that he visited the border and spoke to very specific crimes as a prosecutor and focused in particular on this one in relation to impeding of aid or the prohibition on sufficient aid going into the civilians in Gaza. I take those as signaling something. Whether those are arrest warrants or not, they're certainly not random. I don't think Mr. Khan does these random things. I don't think he says stuff just to say stuff. It piqued my ears. It piqued my attention. I can't tell you that an arrest warrant will be issued or not be issued in the coming months because I just don't know. But this is by far the closest signals we've had ever to an actual arrest warrant being issued in the context of the situation in Palestine. And of course, I do think Mr. Khan has a much easier in a sense, case to get over the legal thresholds with respect to the hostage-taking and murders and indiscriminate bombings and attacks by Hamas. I think the big question is, if he is now kind of set on issuing arrest warrants, does he issue arrest warrants for Hamas first and potentially for Israeli officials afterwards? Does he issue them at the same time? I don't know what the answer to that is. That's an important strategic question. I think it will be a question that his office spends some time thinking through because not for public consumption so much as they will want to do, I think, the thing or take the actions that will most likely or that will contribute most to someone actually being surrendered and therefore prosecuted at the ICC. And I don't envy them with this decision making, but I will be 
looking very closely at what they do and also why they do it and when they do it. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time and analysis. As always, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time and analysis. As always, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.